You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to Yahweh from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering at your appointed feasts to make a pleasing aroma to Yahweh, then he who brings his offering shall offer to Yahweh a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil. And you shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of a hin of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall offer for a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering you shall offer a third of a hin of wine, a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. And when you offer a bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow or for a peace offering to Yahweh, then one shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hin of oil. And you shall offer for the drink offering half a hin of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. Thus it shall be done for each bull or ram or for each lamb or young goat. As many as you offer, so shall you do with each one as many as there are. Every native Israelite shall do these things in this way, in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. And if a stranger is sojourning with you, or anyone is living permanently among you, and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to Yahweh, he shall do as you do. For the assembly there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before Yahweh. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to Yahweh. Of the first of your dough you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to Yahweh as a contribution throughout your generations. But if you sin unintentionally, and do not observe all these commandments that Yahweh has spoken to Moses, all that Yahweh has commanded you by Moses, from the day that Yahweh gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then if it was done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to Yahweh, with its grain offering, and its drink offering, according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven.
because it was a mistake, and they have brought their offering, a food offering, to Yahweh, and their sin offering before Yahweh for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven, and the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before Yahweh for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles Yahweh, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of Yahweh and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And Yahweh said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as Yahweh commanded Moses. Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh your God. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 631 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, June 3rd, 2023, and that was a reading of Numbers chapter 15 in the English Standard Version. The Old Testament is still part of God's Word. Don't know if you knew that. It's still part of the whole counsel of God. I'm not sure that we're all privy to that. It's still all scripture that's breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. I don't know that we all believe that or that we all talk like that or that we all think like that or that we all study like that. But one of the goals that I have right now, come to think of it, as it has just so happened and as my convictions have progressed or developed or matured, you might say, with reading a chapter of the Bible on this podcast, one at a time, each episode, starting in the Old Testament. One of the things that I have realized increasingly is that 
there is so much that we can learn about the character of God and about man's nature and about how the world works from reading the Old Testament. And there's so much that we need to understand about the New Testament, about where we're at right now from reading the context. The Old Testament is our context as Christians. We should not be of the sort who say, oh, church history, I don't need that. I just need my Bible. And then we come to the Bible and then we say, Old Testament, I don't need that. I just need the New Testament. What's next? You come to the New Testament and then you say, well, I don't need the epistles. All I need is the words of Jesus in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, where does it stop, right? Pretty soon people are saying the exact opposite of what God says here in Numbers 15. One of the things that God says to his people, which is don't follow your heart. And if we don't read this passage, we might say, oh yes, follow my heart. That's exactly what I should do, right? That's what God would want me to do because God gave me my heart and he made me this way and I was born this way and God doesn't make mistakes and all kinds of things of that sort we have actually heard in TV shows and in movies and we've read these things in print and we've heard people in our own circles increasingly in the United States of America in the year 2023. We've heard people actually say and it's not true that God made you just the way that you are, and therefore, you shouldn't change a thing. And therefore, for somebody to tell you that you're making mistakes or you've sinned, and even if you didn't know it, you've sinned, it's a sin because God said not to do this thing and you've done it. It's not unloving. It's not hateful to do that. In fact, if your heart is going to lead you astray, it's going to lead you into trouble and heartache and pain and even ultimately death and eternal separation from God, the most loving response for the Christian who knows God's word, who knows God's promises and the character of God and what God has commanded of his people, of all people, for the Christian who knows these things, the most loving possible response is to say, no, don't follow your heart. Your heart is misleading you here. Read the words of God. Read scripture. Read Old Testament. Read New Testament. Understand what is being said here. And if you don't understand, if you can't understand it, you don't have the tools, you don't have the equipment, find a Christian who does. Find a pastor or a lay leader who does have those tools and who can share them with you, who can equip you. This is part of the reason why we're commanded not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together as some do, because we need equipped. We need to be equipped for every good work. We're not born with all of the proper equipment. There is work that has to be done. There's effort. There's intentionality. There is a commitment that is needed. And All of that, by God's grace, we are able to do. We have the privilege of doing. It's not burdensome. It's not toilsome. If we think that these things are a drudgery and a waste of time, well, then that must say more about, again, the condition of our hearts. And that's another thing that we should go to God and ask for 
help with. Please, Lord, help me with my unbelief. I believe, Lord, help me with my unbelief if I don't want to delve into a passage like Numbers chapter 15. Lord, help me with that. Help me to understand this. Help me to see it. Help me to appreciate it. So a couple of things towards that end. And I'm glad you're here listening to this podcast. And hopefully I'm encouraging you in these ways. A couple of things from this particular passage that might whiz right by our heads and we might miss and not appreciate. Or they might step on our toes and we might be offended and we might say, "Ah, see, this is why I don't like to read the Old Testament. Let's jump right into verses 32 through 36. The Sabbath breaker executed. What was he doing? He was gathering sticks on the Sabbath and then he was put to death. And you say, what in the world? What in the world are you talking about? He was doing what on the Sabbath? He was gathering sticks? But hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. One, check your assumptions about the character of God at the door. We don't come to scripture imposing our assumptions of what's fair and what's just and what's reasonable on God. We come to scripture and we see how God has revealed himself, what he has said about his own character, and then we submit our assumptions, our guesswork, our speculation, our prejudices, our foregone conclusions, our presuppositions. We submit all of that to God. And we ask God to transform us. We don't transform his word into something palatable to our sensibilities. But if you're willing to be transformed by the word, I dare say you're not going to come away from this passage thinking that anybody who does even the most minor, most trivial work on a Saturday or a Sunday, depending on when you believe the day of rest should be, one in seven, Historically, it would be Saturday, by the way. That is the seventh day. That's how Jews recognize their Sabbath is Saturday. And it's evening to evening, right? It's not from morning till night. It's evening to evening. Christians for a few thousand years have said it's the Lord's Day on Sunday. And there's history there, which we can get into at some point. I'd love to get into that at some point. But suffice to say for right now, you shouldn't come away from this passage supposing that anybody who does even the most minor of work on a Saturday or a Sunday over the weekend should be taken outside the city camp, town, village, whatever, and stoned. That's not the point of this passage. The point is not anybody who does work on the Sabbath should be put to death. At least I can't read it that way. If I'm missing something, make an argument, make it, make your case, I'll listen. But that wouldn't square with what we see Jesus doing and his disciples doing in the New Testament. As I view it, God says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And furthermore, what is in the previous paragraph? for us to have something of a clue for why when they bring this particular man to Moses and Aaron and Moses and Aaron ask Yahweh their God what should be done with him, Yahweh their God says, take him outside the camp and stone him. The man shall be put to death, verse 35. In the previous paragraph, 
we see, but the person who does anything with a high hand, verse 30, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles Yahweh, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. So what is this, right? The person who does anything with a high hand. This person is put up in contrast with the person who sins unintentionally, which is to say, sometimes we accidentally sin. Sometimes it's not premeditated. Sometimes it's just something we fall into and we weren't thinking, right? We were on autopilot or we didn't know. Nobody had told us. We were ignorant of these things. The the sojourner in particular who's coming into your land, who has not been a part of your people, who has not grown up with all of these things, the sojourner among you, the traveler, the visitor, the foreigner, if they sin and they don't realize that it's a sin, it's still a sin, okay? That's one thing. It's still a sin because God has communicated his standard and that's what it is. And Paul also tells us in the New Testament that the law is written on our hearts. So we have some idea of natural law, as some people call it. But we also find here that the intentionality, knowing that you're breaking God's law, knowing that you're disobeying God, that you're doing the opposite of what he has said to do, if it is high-handed, it actually at root represents something of the opposite of If you love me, you will keep my commands. So that's something that Jesus says in the New Testament. And we can use that backwards. You you can go both directions when you consider the whole counsel of God. We can bring this passage forward to understand better what Jesus is saying when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. But we can also take what Jesus says in the Gospels. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And we can bring it back to this and we can say, This is the opposite. If you hate God, you will go out of your way to disobey just to prove a point to yourself and to other people that, no, you don't have any respect for this God. You don't fear him. You're going to do what you want. How dare he tell you what to do? Who does he think he is? So that kind of a person is to be cut off from their people. If you have a sojourner, if you have a native, Either way, the rule is the same. They're to be cut off from among their people, which I would assume is exile. You are no longer a part of this country. You are no longer part of this people. You are excluded now. If you hate God, you are not one of us, essentially. And what is that? If you understand that everybody who hates God, who's going to intentionally sin, in a high-handed way, is to be put out. Essentially, all that's left is those who love God, or at least those who fear God and keep his commandments. So that's an important point in relation to this passage about the Sabbath breaker. This is a point we will be getting into more in depth later in this episode as we talk about a piece in American Reformer, by Jacob Honeycutt. Can Baptists be Christian nationalists? This is a response to Matt Emerson over at Nine Marks, his piece, which we also here recently talked about. So stay tuned for that. I have some thoughts and more to the point, Jacob Honeycutt has some excellent thoughts 
with regards to the history of blue laws or Sunday laws as they were known in the U.S. But for now, let's get into some current events items. Let's talk a little bit about some of what's in the news. First up, Alex Nitzberg over at theblaze.com published a piece just yesterday. Republican presses VA to stop flying pride flag requests removal of any quote flags promoting social policy positions or political statements end quote. The picture here for the featured image is a screenshot from a local news reporting WLOX4 of the Biloxi National Cemetery, VA National Cemetery Administration overseas. This cemetery, the VA, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, oversees this cemetery. Pictured here, we have three U.S. flags and we have one pride flag flying what looks to me like half-staff. Now, this is a curious image, but not a surprising one, given where we find ourselves culturally. But I actually want to key in on the statement by Congressman Mike Edsel, rather than to talk about the pride flag at the VA cemetery. I'm not surprised by the pride flag in the cemetery here in Biloxi, Virginia. But I want to key in on the objection and the way that the objection is phrased, because I think this is not the way to fight. I think this is not the way to get any kind of traction opposing these things. And I'll explain why here in just a moment. Congressman Mike Etzel tweets out yesterday, 1146 AM, our VA facilities should be focused on serving our veterans, not promoting social or political causes. I take issue with any flag flying at a VA facility that promotes an agenda, including the pride flag at the Biloxi VA. Read the letter I sent to VA Secretary McDonough here. And I won't read the letter for you, but I just want to highlight the need for more substance in the objection, more clarity, more boldness, more directness, a better argument, if you will. I do not find this objection to be well-founded or well-phrased. I agree with the goal of removing the pride flags from the VA cemetery. I agree with that. But let's really think about what's being said here. This is not an honest objection. It's not forthright. It's not direct enough. Think about this. Let's start with the first statement. The first claim. Our VA facilities should be focused on serving our veterans, not promoting social or political causes. Well, let's think about that. The U.S. flags that are flying are promoting a social and political cause. And the men who are in that cemetery, if they served their country in the armed forces, if they died while serving their country, while defending this country, the United States of America, they were absolutely serving social and political causes or a social and political cause. The U.S. flags flying over that cemetery are absolutely promoting social and political cause. The pride flag is absolutely promoting social and political cause. But herein lies the question. 
if you say, I take issue with any flag, which is the next statement that's made, I take issue with any flag flying at a VA facility that promotes an agenda, well, then you would also object to the flag of the United States of America flying because that U.S. flag is promoting an agenda. So this is not a good argument. What you are basically claiming is that you don't believe any flag should be flying, period, including the U.S. flag, which I'm sure Congressman Mike Edsel does not believe. So it's not a true claim. But what's he afraid of actually saying? He's afraid of saying, I'm opposed to the pride flag because it's neo-pagan, it's aggressively leftist, this is the promotion of one political ideology, one, if you will, metaphysical orientation with regards to gender and sexuality, embracing a neo-pagan view of gender and sexuality. I'm opposed to that colonizing the United States of America. I'm opposed to the flag of my enemy being flown over the cemetery for veterans in Biloxi, Virginia. He's, a, he's afraid to say that, as you or I would be, if we were sober-minded, at least cautious. <laughs> at least we would be cautious before saying something like that. But that's what it is. For conservatives, for Christians in the United States of America, the pride flag is the flag of our enemies, or it's a flag of our enemies. I mean, let's just think for a moment, because this is Virginia, let's think back to the Civil War. I'm looking at a poster on my wall right now, a commemorative map, Campaigns of the Civil War Centennial Edition. This thing is from the 1960s, if you could guess. At the bottom of the campaign map, I see Civil War flags of the Union on the left side, and flags of the Confederacy on the right side. And there are different flags. Obviously, on the Union side, we have more recognizable U.S. flags. On the Confederate side, we see the battle flag and naval jack, which we would recognize as being the Confederate flag, but there were plenty of Confederate flags. But we see several variations. So there are several flags that depending on the situation, depending on the circumstance, depending on the context, were flown at any one time by the Union forces or by the Confederate forces. And the flags, if you took a fort, let's say, historically, not just during the Civil War, but historically throughout human history, generally, if you took an enemy fort, what did you do? You lowered their flag that had been flying over the fort and you raised your flag as a sign that you had taken the fort, as a signal to forces on both sides you had taken the fort. And if there was still fighting going on, the enemy who had lost their own fortification, and that's what they were fighting for, to defend their fortification, would give up. That's what the enemy would do if you had taken their fort and raised your flag, lowered their flag, raised your flag over their position. And vice versa. If you have been defending and you see your flag is still flying, you say, I'm going to keep on fighting. We haven't lost. I don't want us to lose this fortification, this castle, this position. 
And so what are the radical leftists in charge over at the VA in place in the White House at the highest levels of the U.S. federal government? What are the radical leftists promoting gender theory and homosexuality and transgenderism and bisexuality? What are they actually communicating by raising a flag for gay pride over a VA cemetery or over embassies or over state capitals or over the U.S. Capitol? What are they actually signaling? They're signaling to conservatives in the U.S. in particular, surrender, give up. We've won. We've taken this position. We've taken this hill. We've taken this fort. We are in charge now. You lost. We won. You lost. That's what's being communicated here. But the kind of objection, if this can be undone, if the fight's not over, if the fight is still ongoing and it's a temporary raising of the battle flag of the left, we have to have a good and effective argument, not one that's embarrassed to admit that the pride flag is the flag of our enemies. The pride flag, let me just say it, the pride flag is the flag of my enemy. It's not of God. It's a promotion of idolatry and sexual immorality and neo-paganism. The pride flag is the flag of my enemy. That's what we should be saying. That's what we should be very clear about. And don't be ugly. Don't be uncivil. Be polite. Be courteous. But be clear, please. In other news, Polis makes wager if Nuggets win finals. Disney World moves to Colorado. Samantha Jarp, I think I'm saying her name right. I hope I'm saying her name right. Reports for KDVR, Fox 31, Colorado's very own. Colorado Governor Jared Polis called for a friendly wager with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Disney on Tuesday. If the Denver Nuggets win the NBA Finals against the Miami Heat, Disney World moves to Colorado. Quote, the actual happiest place on earth to do business, have fun, and be free, Polis said about the state. The Walt Disney World Resort currently resides in the Sunshine State and has, since it first opened, in the early 1970s. However, recently, there have been rising tensions between the amusement park's parent company and DeSantis. It started when Disney spoke out against Florida's Don't Say Gay law after it passed in 2022. After that, DeSantis led an effort to strip the company of the power to control land use for the area around the Disney World Resort. Since then, both sides have taken various actions against the other. Neither Disney nor DeSantis have responded to the proposed wager as of Tuesday afternoon. Games one and two of the series will be hosted in Denver at Ball Arena. After that, the team will travel to Miami for games three and four. Now, let me just point out a couple things. One, the bill was not called Don't Say Gay. That's what people who are unfriendly towards it called it. That's not what the bill, that's not what the legislation, that's not what the law passed in Florida was called, and it's misleading, it's deceptive, it's dishonest to say that that's what the bill was driving at. You can't even say the word gay in the state of Florida. See, these Republicans, no, 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 no. What was at issue was grooming school children in Florida public schools or not, trying to recruit children in Florida public schools to be homosexuals and bisexuals and transgendered or not. 
Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis said, not. Florida's Republican-led legislature said, not. Colorado's openly homosexual Governor Jared Polis, of course, of course, of course, wants to invite Disney World to move to Colorado. And will Disney World, would Disney World, probably not, but maybe, as a gesture, even just it being suggested, though, even just it being joked, is to say that insofar as this is a cultural war, Disney moving out of Florida and to Colorado, for one, it would be very expensive and they're hurting financially right now because they have been trying to groom children. They've been helping the left to try and indoctrinate and recruit children to neo-paganism and homosexuality and ultimately the whole worldview of the left. Do follow your heart. God says, don't follow your heart. Disney says, from little on up, do. Above all things, do follow your heart. Let your heart be your guide. But even just it being joked and suggested is, in some sense, an admission that Disney has lost some battles in the state of Florida, which is to say that Republicans have won some battles in the state of Florida. Now, if Disney and the left wants to paint itself as victimized, oppressed for being told, no, you can't groom school children in the state of Florida. No, you can't. (laughs) No, you can't just do whatever you want and call it love. Then it's just another in a long line of dishonest tricks. But my family living in Colorado, about an hour north of Denver, if Disney World did relocate here, I would have mixed feelings. On the one hand, I would say kudos to Florida for having affected a retreat by Disney. Symbolically, they would say that it was a protest, but I think also symbolically, conservatives and Republicans could call it a win. But the flip side is it would be a tactical retreat. It wouldn't be a retreat and a surrender. Not until we have lowered these gay pride flags everywhere children are present and said, no, you can't plant a gay pride flag over our children. Not until that has been affected coast to coast will we be able to say we've won. And that is a good and worthy goal in my view. So I would have some concern. I would have some reservations. There would be a certain sadness, I'll be honest, if Disney World moved to Colorado because we're here. But then on the other hand, we're here. So if you move Disney World to the state of Colorado until or unless the Lord calls us somewhere else, maybe we'll just trade places. You guys move here, we'll move to Florida or something like that. But if we're here, if the Lord has us here, then it's not over. You move here and we will oppose your ungodly agenda in the state of Colorado as well. By all means, move here and stop trying to corrupt children. Stop trying to colonize the minds of young Americans with godlessness and leftism. Please and thank you. In other news, Joel Abbott over at Not The Bee published a piece May 30th, right on the eve of Pride Month, as the left calls it, in the United States. Conservatives are busy arguing today about the legality of gayness in Uganda, 
while rainbow leftists continue conquering America. So what's in view here is some tweeting back and forth between Jenna Ellis and Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz tweeted out in response to a New York Times article, this Uganda law is horrific and wrong. Any law criminalizing homosexuality or imposing the death penalty for, quote, aggravated homosexuality, end quote, is grotesque and an abomination. All civilized nations should join together in condemning this human rights abuse, hashtag LGBTQ. The New York Times tweet was the president of Uganda signed a punitive anti-gay bill on Monday that includes the death penalty enshrining into law an intensifying crackdown against LGBTQ people in the East African nation. It is one of the world's most restrictive anti-gay measures. Jenna Ellis responded to Ted Cruz, you can condemn a law that imposes the death penalty for homosexuality without being pro or hashtag LGBTQ. Like Bud Light, you should have just said nothing, not this. So Ted Cruz responded to Jenna Ellis. Jenna, not sure why you're defending this barbaric Ugandan law. It imposes life imprisonment for consenting adults who engage in gay sex. That's ridiculous. You or I may or may not agree with their choices, but consenting adults should not go to jail for what they do in their own bedrooms. Jenna Ellis's response to that was, have you actually read the law that was signed? According to AP, it doesn't criminalize homosexuality or someone for identifying as LGBTQ, but does allow the death penalty to be sought for raping children. Are you really against that? And now all of this is somewhat of a farce. Let, let's be honest. It's problematic in a similar way to calling the Florida legislation, don't say gay. It's problematic in a similar way to the Republican from Virginia saying we should remove any flags promoting social policy positions or political statements. This back and forth is muddied and a little bit confused and missing it, in my view. But I'm going to go ahead and play a cut, cut one, of Uganda's president seven years ago sitting down for an interview with CNN after he signed a law that toughened punishments for deviant sexual behavior. You can take a listen, see what you think. In his own words, here is the Ugandan president and, as Joel Abbott says, quasi-dictator Yawari Museveni from seven years ago on CNN. Take a listen. What is your message to Western human rights groups, to President Obama, respect, to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender re people? Respect African societies and their values. If you don't agree, you just keep quiet. Let's manage our society the way we see. If we are wrong, we shall find out by ourselves. Just the way we don't interfere with yours. Do you personally dislike homosexuals? Of course, they are disgusting. What, what, what sort of people are they? How can you go? Uh, I, I, don't, uh, I never knew what they were doing. That's how I've been told recently that uh, what they do is terrible. Disgusting. But I was, I was ready to ignore that if there was proof that that's how he's born, abnormal. But now the proof is not there. Okay. So personally, I think that's an odd follow-up question from CNN. If we're talking about legislation 
Why are they trying to personalize the whole issue? Why is this a question of whether you or I like gay people or transgendered people? Why is that the question? Why is that a relevant question? Isn't the most relevant question whether this is good or whether this is true and how we can know? Isn't that the more pressing question? Isn't that the unasked and unanswered question? Why would we say that people have a human right to do what God says not to do? Honest question. If God says it's an abomination, how could it be a human right? Now, what I'm not saying is you don't have the freedom to do it. But what I am saying is just because you have the freedom to do a thing, that doesn't mean that there are no consequences. For instance, you might have the freedom, so to speak, technically, to commit any crime, that doesn't mean you have a human right to commit the crime. You might have the freedom to want certain things. That doesn't mean you have a human right to those things. For instance, for example, I might want to buy a home. I don't have a human right to a loan from a bank. I don't have a human right to go demanding of the wealthiest person in Greeley, Colorado, move out of your home and allow my family to move in. I can want to buy my own home instead of renting. I can want to get a new family van because we're expecting our ninth child in November. I don't have a human right to go over to the local car dealership and say, I want your 15 passenger for transit or what have you. You need to give it to me. And if you say no, well, then you're a hateful bigot. That's not the way it works. Well, why do the rules dramatically change Why do they change at all, humanly speaking, with regards to sexuality? For that matter, if God has spoken, and he has in his word, and said, this is an abomination, anyone who does such things should be put to death, how can somebody say then, well, I really want to, and therefore I have a human right. You're violating my human rights to tell me I can't or to try and threaten me or to punish me if I do it anyways. This really gets to questions of authority. And how do we know what is true and what is good? Now, that's not to say, that's not to say that any and all legislation that criminalizes homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism is therefore good, or that the people who promote such legislation are therefore good. That would be a logical fallacy. Let's not be naive. Putin, for instance, is very aggressively opposed to homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism in the country of Russia, it doesn't mean that Putin is a good guy. And this is something that throws some Westerners for a loop because they're so concerned about pride flags flying in Target or being plastered onto a Ford Raptor, or they're so concerned about what's being put into our public school curriculum. It doesn't mean that somebody who's opposed to those things very vocally, very actively, or a country that's opposed is therefore in the right or doing everything else right. But here's an interesting screenshot in Joel Abbott's write-up over at Not To Be. And I quote, the version of the bill signed by President Yaweri Museveni doesn't criminalize those who identify as LGBTQ, a key concern for some rights campaigners who condemned an earlier draft of the legislation as an egregious attack on human rights, But the new law still prescribes the death penalty for, quote, 
aggravated homosexuality, end quote, which is defined as cases of sexual relations involving people infected with HIV, as well as with minors and other categories of vulnerable people. So here is another screenshot down below with provisions, sections one, two, and three, providing definitions, creating the offense of homosexuality, creating the offense of aggravated homosexuality, which is punishable by death in Uganda under this law. Aggravated homosexuality is defined as people who, quote, engage in homosexual intercourse with a person older than 75, engage in homosexual rape, engage in homosexual intercourse with children, engage in homosexual intercourse with a disabled or mentally ill person, leave another person disabled or mentally ill as a result of homosexual intercourse they had with that person, have been convicted of homosexuality more than once. Creates the offense of attempted aggravated homosexuality punishable by imprisonment for up to 14 years. Now I look at this and I think to myself, you know, rape, homosexual rape, I'm okay with that being a capital offense. I am. It's okay for us to assume that somebody who's older than 75 may be the victim of rape if we find that there's homosexuality involved at their age. I'm okay with saying we put the person to death who has assaulted a person over 75. I'm okay with putting somebody to death if they engage in homosexual acts with children. I'm okay with the capital punishment being applied in that case. I'm okay with capital punishment for somebody who engages in homosexual intercourse with a disabled or mentally ill person. They can't get away. They can't escape it. They don't have the ability to say no. Really, this is almost more about rape than it is about homosexuality. But it's the two together that make it, in particular, especially detestable, abominable, evil. That's where we have to understand what the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament. For one, he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So we've got an internal consequence. If you are a homosexual, you are living that lifestyle, you are practicing that, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Do not be deceived. Don't be lied to. There is no such thing as a gay Christian on those terms. Here, I reject people being labeled gay Christians, if they have temptation to same-sex attraction. That's not what's being talked about. But those who practice, who live a lifestyle of homosexuality, are not Christians. They revile the commands of God. They cannot then, therefore, say they are followers of God. It doesn't work that way. Numbers 15 makes that very clear. It's a high-handed and flagrant and rebellious act and lifestyle when God's word is clear. But I'm okay with, as in, I believe that it's consistent with the law of God, what God has commanded, what he has prohibited. If Paul writes in another place in the New Testament that the governing authority is a minister of God to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil, I'm very okay with the governing authority punishing rapists, punishing those who prey on children and those who are elderly and those who are mentally ill or physically disabled, I'm okay with the governing authority punishing evil because that is evil. And if it's not evil, well, then you don't believe that there is any such thing as evil, except I'm sure 
passing legislation that would punish evil. You think that that is evil. If you're evil, then everything is backwards. Everything is upside down and inside out. If you are evil and you're actually of your father, the devil, then someone who wants to honor God with their country's laws or their state's laws, with the way they carry out their duties, in your book, they're evil. But that's not what counts. That doesn't cancel out. That doesn't mean that therefore there is no such thing as good and evil because you say it's good to rape people who are defenseless and helpless and to prey on children and to prey on the elderly. If you say that it's good and I say that it's evil, it doesn't cancel out. Like we just shrug and we say, well, we can't possibly know. That's not the way that works. No, objectively, because God said it's evil, it's evil. Also, let's do remember, unless you're reading the Queen James version of the Bible, Leviticus 20.13 says very clearly, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So their blood's on their own head at that point. It's not we who are the cruel oppressors. It's their sin that is oppressing them. It is their choice to give themselves over to what is evil that has actually condemned them. They've made their own choice. You can say, oh, but it's freedom only if we say they make their choice and then we don't try to stop them. We don't disagree with them. We don't criticize them. No, 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 that's not the way freedom works. Freedom isn't without context, without consequence. Freedom has to be, if it's going to be freedom indeed, it has to be on God's terms. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. But you're not supposed to use your freedom as an occasion to sin. You're not supposed to use your freedom to make yourself a slave to sin. That's not why Christ set free those who are in Christ. But you say, well, what about everybody who's outside of Christ? Everybody who's not a Christian. Surely we shouldn't impose our morality on them. Again, Numbers 15 says there's one law for the native and for the sojourner. In the law of God in the Old Testament, you don't have two sets of law. You don't have one set for those who agree with all of this and another set for anybody who's like, yeah, I don't really feel like it. Only those who don't agree are going to flagrantly disobey. So essentially, if you say, well, the person who's violating the law has to actually agree that that's a good law for it to be counted against them. What you're advocating is lawlessness. What you're advocating is sin run rampant and no law enforcement whatsoever, humanly speaking. But that would be contrary to Romans 13, where Paul says, He does not bear the sword for nothing. Bearing the sword is a way of saying that the governing authority holds the power of life and death in his hands. He can defend those who are vulnerable, those who are innocent, those who are helpless, and he's supposed to. The whole counsel of God makes that very clear. He's supposed to. We're supposed to. We're supposed to speak up for those who are being led away to the slaughter. We're supposed to visit orphans and widows in their need. That's religion that God finds pure and acceptable. Also, we should be delivering and rescuing those who are imprisoned and enslaved and preyed upon who are helpless, who have nothing that they can give us in return, and more to the point, they can't even protect themselves from predators. The problem I have with Ted Cruz here, and I mentioned this, I alluded to it in our last episode, the problem I have with Ted Cruz here is, though I very much liked him and I wanted him to be the nominee back in 2016, when he ran for president, his broad statement would find fault with God himself, with 
ancient Israel. He says, any law criminalizing homosexuality or imposing the death penalty for aggravated homosexuality is grotesque and an abomination. Oh, okay. I guess Ted Cruz gets to tell us what is an abomination. How is that more applicable? Ted Cruz's personal private judgment, I suppose public judgment in this case, how is that more relevant to us? Our say in what is an abomination, how is that more relevant to us than what God said? What God said in Leviticus 20.13, God says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. God says that's an abomination, not criminalizing it is an abomination. Ted Cruz and all such Republicans, all such conservatives need to do some soul searching. They need to do some Bible study. They need to do some repenting, coming to the biblical text and being transformed by God's word instead of coming to the biblical text and saying, yeah, that doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Who cares? As Joel Abbott points out, now I know some of you squishes are going to freak out on me here and think bad thoughts about me, even though I'm not saying we should go all Levitical on deviant sexual behavior in every case, but I just want you to know this is, in, <laughs> this is God's thought on the matter. And he quotes Leviticus 20.13, just like I read for you. And then he says, if you disagree with that, you think you know better than God. See, I told you that some of you would think bad thoughts about me after I pulled a Bible verse out because, well, like Ted Cruz, a lot of you have been infected by the woke mind virus. It's okay. I'm here to help. So, exactly right, Joel Abbott. I'd like to shake your hand. Exactly right. In other news, and actually I've got three articles from The Blaze here in quick succession to share with you. Joseph McKinnon, first off, publishing just yesterday, June 2nd, teens arrested after eating town's prized swan and kidnapping its babies from protected pond, according to police. Pictured here is the older of the three, 18 years old. He is smiling, completely unashamed, unembarrassed of what he's done. He seems rather pleased with himself. These swans, you should know if you check out the article for yourself, you should recognize that this town considers these swans to be something like sacred. The swans have been important to the town of Manlius in upstate New York since 1905. These three teenagers had to climb the fence to get in and, as the article puts it, savage the mother swan and steal her babies they took the swan back home for their aunt to cook it up for them. They ate the mother swan. Authorities tracked these youths to their home, retrieved the babies, reunited the babies with the father. You should note as well, swans mate for life. So this male swan, who was the partner, is now a widower, if you will. And there is something wicked about these guys not just killing a swan and eating it, but killing a mother and therefore depriving the babies of their mother. And why steal the babies? What were they going to do with the babies? Raise them for additional food or cook and eat them as babies as well? Why steal the babies? Why leave the male swan 
in the enclosure without his mate. There's something wrong with this. There's something twisted and evil and depraved about the smile. Like this guy is very pleased with himself. This 18-year-old is very pleased with himself about having murdered, in some sense, the town's symbol. I'm not saying that killing and eating a swan is inherently evil or that it's murder to kill a swan, but insofar as the swan is a symbol for the town, this would seem to be a symbolic act of barbaric contempt for the town, contempt for the standards and the norms of this community. And if we feel that, right, if we feel that sense of revulsion, there's a stomach-churning quality to what we know from Joseph McKinnon's reporting here, now consider, again, Numbers 15, with this idea that you can sin unintentionally, and here's the way of making atonement for an unintentional sin, or you can sin flagrantly in a high-handed way, in a way that is supposed to be a gesture. It's a symbol of rebellion. It's you making war against God and his created order and his authority and his goodness. Something like that, but actually far, far stronger, is in view when we disobey God, even picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Is it about picking up sticks on the Sabbath, or is there something in the heart of this guy, this man who is caught doing this thing that is subversive and that wants to make war on the authority of God over Israel, that wants to show off and demonstrate for all to see, yeah, I don't have to obey God. I do what I want. Yeah, if God's got a problem with that, he can take it up with me. It's the latter, and it can't be tolerated. It can't be normalized. It can't be waved off with empty-sounding platitudes about freedom and consent and what's natural and what's normal and the right side of history. Another report from theblaze.com. I thought he was going to die. Man savagely stomped by a group of males in front of his wife needs stitches to reattach eyelid. Dave Urbanski reports for the blaze. An Illinois man was savagely stomped by a group of males in a seemingly random but sustained beatdown at a St. Louis train stop on Memorial Day, all in front of his wife. Quote, my husband's head was gushing blood, end quote. Diana Kunzelman told Hearst, Illinois, regarding the nighttime attack against her husband, Lee. The couple from Glen Carbon was enjoying a night out with friends at an Illinois casino, KMOV-TV reported, and they got on a Metrolink train to downtown St. Louis to sing karaoke. The village of Glen Carbon is about 20 minutes northeast of St. Louis. At the 8th and Pine Stop, a nightmare unfolded. Quote, when we went to get off the Metrolink, a group of individuals, four to five, just attacked us as soon as the doors opened. Lee Kunzelman, whose badly bruised left eye appeared swollen shut, recounted to KMOV, of the assault against him and another man. Kunzelman told the station one of the attackers, quote, shoved me so hard he almost shoved me off my feet and said, get off of me. And as soon as he did that, then they all jumped in and started pouncing on me, end quote. Again, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, if this is truly just a random act of violence by several males and reports are They appear to be in their 20s, tall, thin, African-American. If we say freedom is the freedom to do whatever you want without any consequences, well, then what's the objection to these five young men 
randomly attacking and nearly killing a couple of middle-aged men coming off of a train. What's the objection? If freedom is the ability to do whatever you want without any consequence, what happens when there are victims like these two men? Do we look at the skin color? Do we look at the socioeconomic status? Do we look at who's perceived to be part of the oppressor versus oppressed classes as the Marxists would present them to us? Let's suppose this middle-aged man, gray-haired, had died. Would we then hear something from a George Soros-backed district attorney about how these five men didn't grow up with fathers? They didn't grow up with the right education or the right socioeconomic privileges. It's not really their fault. We're not going to charge them. We can't possibly know. We have to just give them the benefit of the doubt. Yes, we would hear that in this day. So the choices are not between either quietly keep your head down and let the left do what they will on the one hand, and then we'll have freedom and toleration and people will just work it out because people are inherently good. And on the other hand, a repressive dictatorship of moral busybodies claiming Christianity. We have to recognize somebody's definition of right and wrong is going to win out. That's inherent to governmental authority. You have to say somebody is declaring what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And you can have an arbitrary standard that is just whatever's expedient, whatever gets me what I want, but that's lawlessness. That's not toleration. That's not freedom. That's anarchy. And because we have a broken creation, because we have a sinful nature, because there is a real adversary who goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, what you will get is evil running rampant in society, like this couple and their friends encountered in St. Louis. If this were the Old Testament, what would the consequence be? If this were 150 years ago, what would the consequence be? If this is five to 10 years into the future, what will the consequence be? Attempted murder is a big deal. And you don't just whitewash it. You don't just paper over it by saying, you don't understand, right? These guys aren't originally from around here. They've immigrated to the country. They don't understand what our standards are. They're scared. You don't say, well, their ancestors were brought here against their will and they're still upset about it and bitter about it and they were put behind the eight ball. And what do you expect? It's really actually white America's fault. It's Western civilization's fault. No, no. If God is the one declaring what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, look at passages like Numbers 15, where there's one law for the sojourner and the native, not two different laws, not one law if you're a native and then no law if you're just passing through, if you're not from around here. No, no, it doesn't work that way. The sojourner is presumably coming with a different upbringing, a different education, a different set of morals from his home country, a different set of religious beliefs from his home country. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. There's one standard. There's one law. God hates unequal weights and measures. So you have one law for all. Here's another story from The Blaze, this one by Courtney Wheel, published yesterday. Children's choir silenced while performing the national anthem in U.S. Capitol because it might offend someone. There's a video. I'm going to play the audio for you. 
I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go and check out the rest of the write-up for yourself and watch the video. But here it is. Take a listen. Here's cut one. An elite children's choir was silenced in the middle of performing the Star-Spangled Banner inside the U.S. Capitol after Capitol Police reportedly feared that the song could be considered a protest and, quote, might offend someone, end quote. On May 26, members of the Rushing Brook Children's Choir arrived in Statuary Hall of the U.S. Capitol for a prearranged tour. The group believed to be a Christian choir from South Carolina, were also invited to perform a few patriotic songs in the hall after receiving approval from several of the state's congressional representatives, including Russell Fry, William Timmons, and Joe Wilson, all Republicans. However, as the choir was about to complete the third verse of the national anthem, a guide suddenly tapped the director on the shoulder and informed him the Capitol Police had ordered the kids to stop singing immediately. The incident was captured on video which has since gone viral on social media. The children obeyed their director and stopped singing without ever finishing the song, though the audience standing nearby still applauded politely. Matthew Lays, one of the organizers of the event, claimed that Capitol Police gave the order because, quote, singing the anthem could be considered a form of protest. Quote, certain Capitol Police said it might offend someone, cause issues, end quote, added Christina Chapman Heffernan, who first posted the video to Facebook and who is believed to be affiliated with the group. Quote, we respect authority, but we should have been allowed to sing because of the multi-level approval we already got from two representatives involved, Joe Wilson and William Timmons, end quote. Others voiced concerns about the seemingly excessive restrictions placed on law-abiding Americans these days. Quote, when you need a permit to sing your national anthem in your nation's capital, something's gone wrong, end quote. And I would agree. But then this is what happens if we're making the wrong kinds of arguments regarding the flag of our enemy flying over a VA cemetery in Biloxi. If we're making the wrong kind of argument as conservatives, as Christians, as Americans, if we're making the wrong kind of argument that anytime somebody might be upset or offended, that's how we know what's right and wrong. If we're making the wrong kind of argument, we're silencing a choir of Sweet, sweet children singing their national anthem in their nation's capital before we know it. In other news, Joseph Curl, writing for the Daily Wire, published a piece yesterday. Gen Zers are right. In Biden's America, millions need a second job just to survive. Curl writes, Nowadays, they call them side hustles, but in the old days, they were known simply as second jobs. In President Joe Biden's America, with inflation, housing costs, and interest rates soaring, a lot of people need to make more money just to afford the cost of living. And despite all the dismissive smears of the younger generations wasting their money on cappuccino and avocado toast, they're really just trying to stay afloat. Nearly two in five, 39%, of U.S. adults have a side hustle, according to a bank rate survey. The numbers get even higher for younger generations. 
nearly half, 46% of Generation Z workers and more than a third, 37% of millennials, said that they worked a second part-time job or even a second full-time job, according to a study of 22,000 young workers conducted by consulting firm Deloitte, Fortune reports. Bankrate reports that less than one quarter, 24% of baby boomers, who are now age 59 to 77, say they have a side hustle, while 40% Gen Xers, age 43 to 58, have a second gig. And Bankrate puts the numbers even higher, 53% of Gen Zers, age 18 to 26. And 50% of millennials, aged 27 to 42, said they have a second job. The Deloitte poll found younger generations usually pick jobs they can do from home or that have flexibility, like selling online products, delivering food orders, or working for a rideshare company like Uber or Lyft. Quote, the cost of living has been the workers' top concern for two consecutive years now, and finances are consistently their top stress driver. End quote. Michelle Parmalee, who heads Global People and Purpose at Deloitte, told Fortune, quote, interestingly, these concerns are really consistent across both generations. So it's not just a matter of Gen Z's being young and just getting started in their careers. Now, I bring this up. I bring this to your attention. And we'll talk here in just a moment about another related topic where young people are concerned. But I bring this to your attention because I hear the complaints against millennials, my generation, and Gen Z, the next generation down from mine. I hear the complaints from baby boomers and Gen X, more so especially the older Gen X, the younger baby boomers, that Gen Z and millennials don't know how to do anything. And we're stunted in our development. And we're missing key milestones that previous generations of Americans had hit by this time in their lives. I hear all of that and I think to myself, one, we, we have not been in charge, right? We haven't. We have not been the ones driving inflation, out of control government spending, over-regulation of everything. We're not the ones who raised ourselves and gave ourselves an education or decided what we would be exposed to, what skills we would be taught learning right alongside our parents or watching their example. We're not the ones who made those decisions. The hand that has been dealt to us generationally is what we have to work with. And people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. So there's a cruelty that I think is very much in keeping with the fact that the baby boomers in particular aborted Gen X by the millions and by the tens of millions. There's a cruelty and a selfishness to having wrecked this country and mismanaged this country and selfishly hoarded the fruits of the labors of previous generations, previous to the baby boomers. There's a cruelty and a selfishness that I think is consistent with how much abortion we've seen. Now, how would it be if there was a general consensus in the generation that legalized Roe v. Wade, or pushed for the legalization, I should say, of Roe v. Wade, the removal of Bibles from public schools, 
the promotion of sexual immorality and violence in entertainment, the removal of God from the public square, if that generation did not then also use and abuse their children and their grandchildren's generation. How inconsistent would that be? At best, you could call the older generations that we're supposed to be raising, the millennials and the Gen Zers, negligent. That's the best thing you could say in many cases. But in just as many cases, there's been a predatory and almost cannibalistic way of relating to opportunities. Seeing Gen X as a lost generation, they were just bad kids. They were just a bad crop of kids is missing the point if they were a product of their upbringing in many ways. Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's older, he won't depart from it. If the unspoken claim is you were an accident, we didn't want you. We're going to treat you like we didn't want you for most of your upbringing. I'm just glad we didn't have more kids. If there's a self-serving, self-indulgent approach to retirement in many cases, I mean, how come that doesn't get more play? That you have older generations of Americans sitting in very comfortable homes, complaining about how their kids are still living with them or still asking them for money. That generation that is so very comfortable in many cases, relative to the younger generations, voting for politicians who then drive up the national debt, drive down competition in the market, drive down initiatives that would make more affordable housing, food, clothing, and education. There's something cruel. There's something selfish. And I would say not just negligent, but predatory. Even a lot of the talk of the demographic crisis, you hear complaints about the birth rate declining and how few young people are getting married, starting families, having kids. What is a leading warning? If these young people don't start getting married and having kids and starting families and getting homes, well, they're being a burden. They're just hanging on their parents, living in their parents' basements. Okay. But that is to say that their parents have basements for them to live in, and these young people don't have homes of their own. So there's a couple of ways to look at this, actually. Uh, For another thing, what are we saying when we point to how older Americans are going to retire and there's not going to be enough young people in the workforce to support their retirement? I hear that all the time. Wait, 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 wait. How come the concern isn't for how these young people are going to live out their days? What's going to be there for their retirement? How come that's not the concern? Why are we not seeing a larger move if there is a shortage of affordable housing? Why are we seeing a larger move for the older generations that have accumulated so much retirement to pay off the debts of their children and vote for more fiscally conservative, more socially conservative public servants for the legislatures, for governorships, for mayors, for city councils, for school boards? Why isn't there more of a push for the older generation to rethink their investment strategy? You know, if it's all being poured into the stock market and then the stock market tanks, and then that money that you were investing in whatever shiny object venture caught your attention that day, but your money's not going into investing in your children and your grandchildren 
and then the stock market tanks, and now you don't have any savings, and now your kids have nothing but debt. Does that potentially bear out the truth of what Jesus says when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also? Could this just be a later in life expression of the same selfishness that saw so many baby boomers aborting Gen Xers and then having two kids on average per family in the millennial generation and raising them all about themselves? And what I mean by that is a lot of the baby boomers raised their kids in a very self-serving way, in a way that was self-serving to the parents' generation. And then what happens You've got the older generation mocking the younger generations that they themselves have hobbled. They've exploited when they didn't abort and neglect them. Anything good that the millennials and the Gen Zers accomplished, their parents' generation, very quick, very eager to swoop in and try and take credit for. Anything wrong, very happy to pin that entirely on their children's generation. If you ask me, the ones who have avoided responsibility, taking responsibility for society are the baby boomers. I think that after World War II, what you had was a whole lot of GIs who came home, beat up, traumatized, ready to start families, and they had a whole mess of kids. That's why there was a baby boom, because you get all these GIs coming back from fighting in Europe and in the Pacific and all over the world. They come back, they have a whole mess of kids. And those kids look at the sacrifices of the GI generation, the greatest generation, and they say, yeah, I'm not going to go out like that. What a waste. I am going to look out for me. And it looks different at each stage of life, but nevertheless, it's going to fall to the millennials and the Gen Zers to affect a national repentance. By God's grace, if the Lord will be so kind to us, We need a heart change, and we can't wait on the older generations to recognize that. This is a very sobering report from Joseph Curl, not least because the Gen Zers and the millennials have been so put down for still getting help from their parents' generation. There's a sense in which all of this is individual, and there's a sense in which all of this is societal. It's not either or. It can be true at the same time that the individual choices or what the individual is accountable for, but it can also be true that you scale up those individual choices and what you get is culture. And a generation can have a culture that is common to it and it can affect the culture of the next generation, but these are distinct cultures. And just like in the Old Testament, we've got righteous kings who seek after the Lord as David did, and you have wicked kings. And sometimes it's just one generation removed, whether the people of Israel obey and serve God and are blessed, or whether the people of Israel go whoring after false gods and are punished for it. Now, consider this from Not to Be Staff, May 31st. Real talk, why the heck are y'all spending this much on weddings these days? Axios tweeted out, almost every aspect of planning, hosting, and attending weddings is getting pricier. Even guests are going into wedding debt. 40%, according to Axios, 40% of people who've gone to weddings in the past five years have gone into debt to be there per a recent lending tree survey. That jumps to 62% if they were also in the bridal party, 
which comes with additional obligations like showers and bachelor and bachelorette parties. So what you have here is by the numbers, the average cost of a wedding in the US ticking up from $28,000 to $29,000 from 2022 to 2023. Washington, D.C., 45400 New Jersey, $44,219. Massachusetts, $40,097. Now think about this with me for a moment. Who's paying those costs? And who is encouraging that to be what a wedding costs? Really, what's driving this? If Gen Z and the millennials are so strapped, by and large, that they have to have a second job, second part-time job, or a side hustle, or a second full-time job even, I would bet you that the majority of these costs are being paid by parents, which is to say that the parents' generation has the wherewithal to be able to drop tens of thousands of dollars on their child's wedding. Now, here's where I'm going to make it uncomfortable. If the parents of the bride and the groom have tens of thousands of dollars, this is average, by the way, right? So some are paying well in excess. You've got some people like my wife and I, who we spent $1,000 for our wedding. You have people like us. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who are dropping eighty dollars to $100,000 on a wedding. The ones that are dropping eighty dollars to $100,000 on a wedding, it's not these young people. It's not the 30-year-old who's got that kind of money to spend. It's their parents' generation. And why is their parents' generation spending that much money on a wedding? Well, I'll tell you, because this is about their vanity. It's about the vanity of the baby boomers and the older Gen Xers. This is a big public event. I want everybody to see how much I spent on my daughter's wedding, my son's wedding, because this reflects on me. It's vanity. Now, how would it be, just some food for thought here, if all of that extra were being put into the down payment on a house or paying off the vehicle, buying a vehicle. You could buy a brand new vehicle outright for that. How about instead of renting this big, beautiful venue, you take that money and you put it into buying your own beautiful venue to live in as a family, to have kids in. How about you put that money into knocking out all the debt so that when this young couple gets married, they can have kids and they can raise a family and the wife can stay home and raise her own children and homeschool them. How about that? But for the same reasons that it would be a vanity project to spend tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars on this big, beautiful wedding for the same reasons that older generation is going to say, ah, do you really want to do that? Because how's it, how does that reflect on them? When they go golfing, when they go hanging out with their older generation business associates and friends and fellow retirees, and they're swapping brag stories about how their kids are doing, how successful their kids are being. I'm sorry to say, I think in too many cases, that older generation that wants to brag and boast about their kids' accomplishments would be embarrassed to say, you know what? Our daughter stays home and she's pregnant again with their third or their fourth or their fifth, and she homeschools and our son-in-law or our son, he's working to provide 
These things are all related. They're all bound up together. And how much simpler would it be if we were looking to God's word to give us our priorities and our values? I, for one, am going to tell my kids, you know what? I don't have tens of thousands of dollars to help you guys pay for wedding costs, but we are all going to pitch in and we're going to make it special. And we're going to call in favors and friends. And if you're marrying a gal, my sons, I have seven sons. We don't know yet whether we're having another boy or a girl in November, but I have seven sons and one daughter. I'm going to say to my sons, you know what? If you're marrying into a family where your future parents-in-law have tens of thousands of dollars to spend on a wedding, I think you should encourage them to reappropriate that into helping your young household with what's actually going to help you be successful in the long run and follow after the Lord and serve the Lord with your life together. How about instead of renting all of this stuff and hiring all of these people, how about you invest that money into good cooking, a nice bed set or bedroom set, a big, beautiful dining room table, the down payment on a house that you'll own instead of renting, a vehicle you don't have to make payments on. How about that? How about you take that money and you put it into starting your own business, seed money to start your own business and own your own business so that you guys are financially independent? How about that? That's what you should encourage your future in-laws if they've got that kind of money sitting around to put that money into. But I think what's being guessed at in some of these cases is the more money you spend on the wedding, the more likely that this young couple will be thought well of And then their marriage will succeed because they'll get lots of social support. Because what we think makes a person successful is if the community approves, if the community is ooing and aahing. In actual fact, what's going to make you successful is remembering Psalm 127. Unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from Yahweh, the fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. How about you build these young families on that older generation, moms and dads, who've got the money to invest somewhere, instead of throwing this big, ginormous, self-serving party, how about you put your children and your future grandchildren first? Just a thought, just a thought. In a pretty significant change of topic, and yet there's a relationship here, wait for it. Archaeologists were stunned as they uncovered something giant buried underneath Cairo. A story by Tyler Conaghan from Past Chronicles, posted to msn.com, reads as follows. Archaeologists faced daunting conditions as they excavated an ancient statue from the mud in a district of Cairo, Egypt in 2017, initially presumed to portray one of Egypt's renowned pharaohs. The colossal statue now raises the possibility of representing a ruler from the late period. If confirmed, this discovery would mark it as the largest statue from that particular era in Egyptian history. A collaborative research team comprising German and Egyptian archaeologists made the remarkable discovery. Their excavation took place in the El Matare district of eastern Cairo, which was once the site of the ancient city of Heliopolis. 
The area, characterized by unfinished sculptures and muddy pathways, presented a challenge and inhospitable working environment. Now, we'll pause right there. There's a picture of a broken, it looks like head, from the statue. But we'll pause right here just long enough to comment that a lot of wealth was poured into these statues. And for thousands of years, people have been unaware that they were even under the ground that they were walking on, the streets that they were traveling on, the houses that they were living in. A lot of money, a lot of skill, a lot of attention was put into this pageantry. And something happened that upset the best laid plans of mice and men. The laborers labored in vain. The watchmen stayed awake in vain because that foundation on which the wealth was generated to pay for these works, to commission and guide these works, was not stable. And so at a certain point, just like these statues were broken and fell and were buried, so also the power behind their commissioning in the first place broke and fell and was buried. And this should be a sobering thought. This should be a sobering thought along the lines of the poem by Percy Shelley, Ozymandias. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair, nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. What will endure, what will remain, bears some consideration as we try and figure out what our priorities should be today, right now, for the generations that follow us, for the generations that follow after them? Are we embarking on vanity projects and we don't care what happens after we're gone? We're just living it up because this is all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Or do we go with Psalm 127? Along very similar lines to the story out of Cairo, Egypt, Ben Whitehead over at The Daily Wire published a piece June 1st, completely unique. Archaeologists unearthed dozens of 2,700-year-old rock carvings that may form a narrative. He writes, archaeologists in Sweden have uncovered 40 stone carvings that they believe date back roughly 2,700 years, according to a report from Swedish news outlet Sveriges Television. I don't know if I said that right. Just for the record, if you know how it's said, you can write to me at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Let me know. <clears throat> but the petroglyphs, which were covered by a layer of moss, include depictions of people, ships, and animals. They were located near Kevil, or Kevil, Sweden, by researchers with the Foundation for Documentation of Bahuslan's Rock Carvings in early May. According to researchers, the granite rock that the carvings are on once made up an island which means whoever carved them would have likely been on a boat or platform, the outlet notes. Today, the rock sits in a grassy field. Quote, what makes the rock carving completely unique is that it is located three meters above today's ground level on a steep rock surface, which during the late Bronze Age was located on a small island. Researchers were first alerted to the rock because of what looked to be man-made lines under the moss, Live Science reported. Once removed, the depictions, each between 12 and 16 inches, were revealed. One of the carvings shows what researchers believe to be multiple horses 
and the largest petroglyph, which measures 13 feet long, depicts a ship. The outlet notes, 13 feet long. That's amazing. That's amazing. So essentially, they didn't know that these carvings were under the surface of the moss. So in Egypt, you've got statues that are buried under mud and sand and streets. And here in Sweden, you've got petroglyphs covered in moss. And if you think about it, the whole world is filled with buried detritus, buried art, buried statuary, buried ruins, buried foundations, buried pottery, and tombs of people who lived before us and have since passed on. And in some cases we know, in how many cases do we have no idea until somebody starts taking a closer look and they say, hmm, what is this? And how much of what today seems so very, very important is really just vanity of vanities, chasing after the wind. How much of what today we spend so much time and attention on is passing away and it won't last. Unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. How much of our day-to-day activity is focused on what God is building, what God is watching over? How much of our day-to-day activity and our planning for the years of our lives or the generations that come after us, how much of that is even occupied at all with what God is building and what God is watching over? Children are a heritage from Yahweh. We're here because previous generations valued having children. And if we do well, it's in large part because previous generations invested themselves in passing something down to us. And this is what it means to be a conservative, that you would say, what's been passed down to us, we want to be good stewards of. We want to take good care of it so that we can pass it on to our children after us. And this is not to say that the rock carvings in Sweden are no big deal at all. I think this stuff is fascinating. I would love to go and visit these petroglyphs myself. Petroglyphs here in the U.S., from Native American civilizations, pre-Columbian, pre-European civilizations. I've been to some, and it's quite the experience. In another life, I might have been an archaeologist. That's how much I enjoy these kinds of things. But what am I busy with? I'm busy working to provide for my family, to protect my family, to lead and guide my family, to teach my children after me, to love my wife and my seven sons and my daughter And we don't know whether we're having another son or daughter by God's grace in November, but that's where my attention is because that's what's going to endure. These children and this wife of mine and me, myself, all of us, we are eternal. And if the Lord is building this house and if the Lord has blessed us with a heritage in the form of children, well, then I believe what the psalmist writes, that I'm blessed. And I would implore my countrymen, I would implore my fellow Christians in particular, do likewise. Not because of me, not because of my credibility, but because of God's credibility. God knows best what is blessed. But now we come to the meat and potatoes of this episode. We're going to talk about two articles that were sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez. The first 
by Jacob Honeycutt over at the American Reformer, published May 31st. Can Baptists be Christian nationalists? The second by Mark Tooley over at Providence Magazine. Christian dictatorship chic with a question mark. Both of these being questions, hopefully we can arrive at some answers. Uh, First off, the piece by Honeycutt at American Reformer starts as follows. Over the past two years, it has become the accepted wisdom in many quarters that so-called Christian nationalism is irreconcilably incompatible with Baptist political theology. Setting aside for now the endless debates over the definition of Christian nationalism, to casual observers of these debates, this accepted wisdom seems entirely reasonable. After all, any student of Baptist history knows that Baptists were at the forefront of the movement to ensure ecclesiastical disestablishment in the new American Republic. If Baptists stood opposed to the United States being a, quote, Christian nation, end quote, at the time of the Founding Fathers, why would Baptists support it today? And I won't read this full thing. I will encourage you to read it because it's fairly lengthy. But in Honeycutt's telling, there was a certain convention by Southern Baptists about a hundred years ago in which a resolution and a speech were offered up saying that Baptists in the SBC did not want the establishment of a state church. A certain truit is quoted here. We affirm that it is the sense of the 5,000 and more messengers in session of the Southern Baptist Convention, representing three millions of white Baptists, that it is contrary to the true spirit of Americanism and to the traditions of the American people to foster or favor any union of church and state, end quote. Messengers assembled at the 1920 SBC Convention affirmed that they agreed with this statement. And so this is being quoted, as Honeycutt points out, today to say the SBC needs to get apolitical. Christians in America generally need to become apolitical. But then Honeycutt shares with us something more to the story, as there typically is, even if it gets covered up in moss or buried underneath sand and mud and city streets, and houses. Honeycutt continues, As I was researching George Truett's speech earlier this semester while working on my master's thesis, I stumbled upon a paradigm-shattering historical fact. At the 1920 SBC convention held in Washington, D.C., the same one at which Truett delivered his speech on religious liberty, the messengers to the SBC also adopted a resolution that to most American ears today would sound exceedingly Christian nationalist, and which would, without a doubt, provoke cries of theocracy. Indeed, in 1920, the majority of messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention formally requested that the civil magistrate enforce the fourth commandment in the form of the Christian Sabbath. It seems that Southern Baptist clergy and laity, upon arriving in Washington, D.C. for the convention that year, were scandalized by the municipality's lack of Sabbath laws. Thus, they introduced and passed this resolution. Quote, Whereas there is no Sunday closing law in Washington City, therefore be it resolved that the Southern Baptist Convention, in meeting assembled, requests its membership over the South to press upon their congressmen the vital importance of observing the day 
as a civil institution in this critical period of our national history and urging legislation on this pressing question in the District of Columbia. Translation. The SBC explicitly asked the municipal government of Washington, D.C. to pass a law mandating that businesses close on Sunday, the Christian Sabbath. Southern Baptists today, as Honeycutt points out, and I quote, would be wholly unfamiliar with the doctrine of Sabbatarianism. This resolution reveals that Southern Baptists in 1920 operated under quite different political presuppositions, which is to say that what we mean by Christian nationalism, as I've been trying to point out, as I've been trying to argue, what we mean by Christian nationalism today is more properly defined by the left as any engagement in the public square with government, with legislation, with public policy, by Christians, informed by God's word. That's what they mean by Christian nationalism. Agree with Stephen Wolf if you want to, or disagree with him if you can't agree with him. Stephen Wolf is not defining what Christian nationalism is to most folks in America today. So if we're having a debate about whether we can be Christian nationalists, and then we say, well, Baptists have never been for this thing known as Christian nationalism, the bit of sleuthing and digging through history books by Honeycutt here shatters that illusion. And it is an illusion. I was just having a conversation with some Chick-fil-A employees, longtime Chick-fil-A employees, last night, in which the question of preferred pronouns came up. After our biblical training group, we were talking about preferred pronouns. And what if somebody is hired onto the local Chick-fil-A here in Greeley who is transgendered, and they say their preferred pronouns are opposite the maleness or the femaleness that God created them with. What is a team member of the local Chick-fil-A to do if they say, I can't in good conscience use your preferred pronouns? What will the response from Chick-fil-A corporate be if a team member citing their Christian convictions says, I can't use your preferred pronouns, I can't do it? I mean no disrespect, but because I fear God, because I love the truth, because I love you, I can't use your preferred pronouns. I have to use pronouns that are in keeping with how God actually made you. And the sad realization for me, and I think for all of us, was that there wasn't a clear and definitive expectation that Chick-fil-A corporate would support a private abstention on the grounds of conscience by a team member working at one of their restaurants or in their corporate offices. The sad realization is that in recent years, despite the founder of the company having been very explicitly Christian, very vocally and publicly running his business to honor Christ in obedience to God's word, his having passed on and no longer being being in charge, is no longer being at the helm of the company, with the new management, there have been efforts to walk back some of that expressly, explicitly Christian morality that the company was founded on, that the company has been so blessed by expressing and managing itself on the basis of. 
And so I think it was my wife who asked the question, well, don't Chick-fil-A restaurants shut down on Sundays? They don't stay open on Sundays because it's the Sabbath. And there was some hemming and hawing from these Chick-fil-A employees where they said, well, you know, no, that's not the way it's expressed. That's not the way that employees are told. That's not the reason that's given anymore. It's more promoted for health reasons and, hey, you should take a rest. And it's very much about the individual. And whether or not that's in keeping with what Jesus said, that man is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man, put that aside for a moment and just realize that even just a private business, a corporation in public saying to its employees, we don't work on Sunday. We want you to go to church, go and worship, go sit under good biblical preaching and teaching. We'll see you on Monday. That is seen as Christian nationalism. That's seen as oppressive and backwards and regressive because the people who are defining Christian nationalism on the left and among the secularists and among the Marxists, they know exactly what they're doing. They're pushing out a competing ideology, a competing worldview, a competing paradigm. They are displacing and subjugating an enemy as they see it. And they should be regarded likewise as our enemy. Now, that doesn't mean that we get ugly. It doesn't mean that we repay evil for evil. It doesn't mean that we repay reviling with reviling. We want to be blameless and we don't avenge ourselves. We leave it to the wrath of God. But on the other hand, we should recognize that we have an enemy of our souls in Satan. We should recognize that we have enemies who are flesh and blood. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, but we have enemies that are flesh and blood. And we should be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And we should recognize the very manipulative game that's been played with language that would see even Christians in a country predominantly and historically and self-consciously Christian in its outlook, in its view of morality, in its view of true and false as categories, right and wrong as categories, just and unjust as categories. Christians saying, We want there to be laws that reflect the commands of God, the promises of God, the character of God. That is detestable to the radical left and the secularists and even the squishy conservatives today, but it is a non-negotiable if we would actually endure as a people. Unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, which is to say the conservatives who want to conserve Western civilization or they want to conserve the United States of America without expressly, self-consciously Christian categories of true and good and beautiful are wasting their time, ultimately. But the flip side is God can still use their efforts, what they think they're preserving, and what God is actually building can be two very different things, but God can still use their efforts. And this is more my key interest, my central focus. We as Christians don't need to hold back just because some who are saying they're conservatives seem like they've got it well enough in hand. Or we don't want to be all mixed up with them, with what they're doing. No, no. How about we call all to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? How about we know what God's word says and we equip ourselves and one another for every good work, for every good work, which is to say any good work that you would find being listed or categorized as a good work in the Bible, 
or which we would reasonably infer is a good work from the commands of God or the principles of God, or the promises of God, or what God has blessed, expressed approval of in the Bible, every one of those works we want to be equipped for. So that if God has called us to them, or if God gives us the occasion to do those good works, walk in those good works, we faithfully serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Privately, if at all possible, so that God who sees in secret will reward us. But publicly, if that's what God calls us to, because Jesus also says, no one lights a lamp and then hides it under a bushel. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the salt of the earth, but salt that has lost its savor is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under men's feet. Do we want to be like the statues of long forgotten pharaohs just now being dug up in Cairo streets? Do we want to be like petroglyphs on the rocks in Sweden? Mossy, forgotten, who even knows what this is? Wow, that's something. Yeah, huh, weird. Anyway, irrelevant? I surely hope not. I surely hope not. Last but not least, Mark Tooley published a piece over at Providence Mag, May 31st, 2023, titled Christian Dictatorship Chic, with a question mark. Tooley writes, Should Christians idealize dictatorships or even suggest dictatorship for America? In the current post-liberal moment, there's a new Christian authoritarian chic. Recent examples include a conservative Christian finding virtue with East German communism and another extolling a Protestant Francisco Franco for America. The first example is American conservative editor Helen Andrews, who's Eastern Orthodox, in a book review for Compact, a new post-liberal journal called What Soviet Nostalgia Gets Right. Andrews laments the decline of birth rates in East Germany after communism fell, perhaps due to the end of universal subsidized daycare and lavish birth year maternity leave, which had been a jewel of the East German welfare state. And that was a quote, by the way, a direct quote. There was also the, quote, loss of a sense of purpose, end quote, which is important. And we'll get back to that here in just a moment. That loss of a sense of purpose being commented on by American conservative editor Helen Andrews. A quote from Andrews, most post-Soviet countries are more prosperous now than in 1990 after experiencing temporary declines during the period of shock therapy, but drug use and street crime, which had been rare in East Germany, were brought in with reunification along with pornography and sex shops. Those old timers who have sensed a rise in overall disorder and degeneracy have a point. And here's another quote from Andrews. The bargain that East Germany offered is basically the one China offers now. Stay out of politics and we will leave you alone. And in return, we will deliver rising living standards. Most people are happy to take this deal. And in the case of China, the rest of the world doesn't condemn them for it. 20 years ago, the vast majority of Chinese graduate students stayed in America after earning their doctorates. Now the trend is to return to China. They're voting with their feet. End quote. Now let's just stop. Let's stop because I want to address Thule's premise. And I also want to address what Andrews is being quoted as saying here. Now, with regards to Chinese graduate students staying in America or returning to China, we need to recognize that the CCP is reportedly hunting down Chinese around the world, particularly those 
who might embarrass the CCP back in China or who might criticize or who are a way of getting back at family and friends still in China. So if you are a Chinese national who has moved abroad and you fear for your safety with those kinds of reports circulating, maybe you don't vote with your feet any more than the East Germans were free to vote with their feet. The Berlin Wall was not built to keep West Germans out. The Berlin Wall was built to keep East Germans from getting to the West. It wasn't the glory days when the Soviets were in charge. It wasn't the glory days when Mao Zedong was exporting grain and starving tens of millions of his own people for the so-called Great Leap Forward, which is being romanticized in the West as well by those who want to see us overcome the specter of climate change. There's talk again of something like a Great Leap Forward. Hey, let's just stop using electricity. Hey, let's just stop growing this food. Hey, let's just stop sending water to people. Hey, let's just defund the police. Let's just see what happens when we shut down all social services, all of the food production and electricity production, and let's ban people from buying cars that run on gasoline or diesel. And let's see what happens. Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Billions of people will die and billions more will be oppressed. They will have no freedom, just like a man, woman, or child living in the Soviet Union under Stalin had no freedom, just like a Chinese man, woman, or child living in China under Mao had no freedom. Because again, this is not a, if the Christians would just be quiet and mind their own business, everybody would have freedom sort of a thing. This is a, who will you serve? This is a, what will come of your freedom? Where are you most free? Where are you actually free? What's being promised is if you empower the left or at least get out of their way, you'll be delivered from the supposed oppression and repression of these Christians who want to tell you not to work on Sunday. Yeah, don't use that language. No, I don't want to see two men kissing on a float in a pride parade. No, I don't want you to be selling pride onesies for six-month-old babies. No, I don't want you performing sex change surgery on 11-year-olds. No, I don't want you giving school children in the public schools pornography to read. What's being promised by the left is if you empower them or at least get out of their way, they're going to clean house with the Christians who've been telling you no. The fine print is not, <laughs> not that the Chinese nationals go to school in America and then go home because it's better there. They're going to go back to China because they fear for their lives if they stay in the West. If they're foreign agents and they're spying and they're starting to be rooted out, well, then maybe it's time to go back home to China, especially if we're just about to kick off World War III. Might want to get home before that starts. There's a storm coming. And if they're sympathetic to the West, they might want to get home because otherwise their family might be imprisoned or killed, or they themselves might be hunted down and assassinated abroad. Mark Tooley offers up another quote from Andrews. In fact, by many of the indices 
of consumer wealth percentage of households owning a car, a fridge, a washing machine, a TV, East Germany performed very respectably, especially by the end of the 1970s. If its consumer products were fewer and shabbier than the West's, its leaders said, with some justification, this was made up for in other ways, free healthcare and daycare, subsidized public transport, excellent schools. Thule then follows up this quote by saying, Andrews blames West Germany for isolating East Germany in a virtual trade embargo, at least until 1970. Of course, Andrews' ultimate point is not to glamorize East Germany, but to deride liberal democracy and free markets. She writes that, quote, for millions of people who lived under a different system, the superiority of liberalism wasn't obvious to take their views seriously, is also to consider the possibility that alternatives exist now too, end quote. So what's presented here is, I think, the wrong comparison. Just like Ted Cruz weighing in on Uganda's recent law criminalizing aggravated homosexuality, his calling that an abomination should not be held up against what the left is promoting to where you say, oh, those are our two options. So I agree in a sense with what Andrews is saying. Yeah, there are other possibilities. There are other alternatives besides so-called liberal democracy on the one hand and Soviet-style communism, Maoist Chinese-style communism. There are other options, but as Thule continues on, he brings up another example from American Reformer, which I just read and referenced a piece in the American Reformer for you. I have before. I will continue on. The piece by Jacob Honeycutt, Can Baptists Be Christian Nationalists, is published in the American Reformer. But Thule here references executive director for the American Reformer, Joshua Abatoy, who tweeted out, and I quote, basically, America is going to need a Protestant Franco. And here, who is being referenced? Francisco Franco. As Thule points out, Abatoy later added, I don't personally want Franco or Pinochet. Their regimes were less than ideal in many ways. I want a virtuous citizenry capable of self-governance. But at this point, you need to have your head in the sand if you don't see parallels to 1930s Spain, end quote. So what's in the mix here is, I think, a variation on the rejection of Stephen Wolfe's The Case for Christian Nationalism. And I think it's also a variation on the left caricaturing Christians who are wanting to engage politically, informed by biblical truth, the dismissive that we're wanting the handmaiden's tale. That's what we really want. We want the Spanish Inquisition. We want the Salem witch trials. We want the handmaiden's tale. I think there's something of a variation on that here. And actually, I think there is something of an embracing by some. It's not that nobody is okay with having a harsh, repressive, totalitarian, theocratic government here in the U.S. But... Put aside all references to Francisco Franco and the really weird optics of somebody writing for a supposedly conservative outlet, but praising communist states, communist countries. Set aside that for a moment. Let's walk it back a little. let's, (laughs) Let's think to ourselves about Romans 13. Romans 13 tells us that the governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing, which is to say some of the sensibilities inherent to 
liberal, secular democracy have been embraced, uncritically taken as something like gospel truth for too long, and we have no idea where they came from, and we can't support them biblically as Christians. And if you try to, it goes about as well as Matt Emerson's piece at Nine Marks being replied to with Jacob Honeycutt's American Reformer piece. It is not to be assumed that God is opposed to laws outlying, criminalizing, requiring the death penalty for homosexual acts. It's not to be assumed that God's opposed to that. In fact, the evidence is weighted heavily in favor of outlawing homosexuality, certainly homosexual rape of the defenseless, of children, the elderly, mentally ill, handicapped. The evidence is weighted heavily from the Bible that God is himself still opposed to these things because such will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. No one who practices such things will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Paul writes, God's character hasn't changed. And you say, well, that's heaven. That's where our concern should be, preaching the gospel to people who are headed for eternal damnation, not trying to legislate their morality. And I say, well, do you apply that to all sins, all evils? When we come to the question of abortion, for instance, it's either murder or it isn't murder. If it is murder, then do you say, well, we shouldn't be trying to get people to stop murdering. We should be calling them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And I say, but if you're calling them to repentance, then they're going to have to repent of murder and especially murder of innocent blood, especially the murder of infants. If you're not opposed to the murder of infants in their mother's wombs, with their mother's go ahead, then you lost me. You're not a serious person. You're not being consistent. You clearly haven't thought this through. But if we say, well, we should be calling people to repentance, but don't call our government, don't call people who are serving in high office in the United States of America to repentance. Why? Well, because separation of church and state. I say, well, what do you do about John the Baptist calling Herod, king of the Jews, was the title that was conferred on him by the Roman Senate. King of the Jews, Herod, was called publicly to repent of taking his brother's wife by John the Baptist. Do we find fault with John the Baptist for that? Do we see him as having brought it on his own head? Was it his own fault that he was beheaded when he publicly called Herod to repentance? So we say, oh, we should be about the gospel. That's what we should be about. We should be about making disciples. And I say, but the Great Commission is teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded, which is to say, you believe and your faith expresses itself in obedience and turning away from what is evil and turning towards righteousness, actively obeying. So you're not going to disobey by doing the things God says not to do, but you're also going to actively obey and do the things God tells you to do. And so somebody then says, well, where, where will it stop? I mean, as, clearly, at least Baptists can't be for any of this stuff, right, Matt Emerson? Right? Tell him. And then Honeycutt's sitting in the back of the room like, uh, you know, actually, I found something interesting about that 1920 SBC convention in Washington, D.C. Yeah. So they passed a resolution. Did you guys know that? They, they passed a resolution calling on the municipal government to enact laws requiring businesses to close on Sundays so that employees could go 
to church. You know, go worship at whatever church you want to. That's what it actually means to have a separation of church and state. We're not going to require you to go to the Anglican church or the Episcopalian church or the Methodist church or the Lutheran church or the Roman Catholic church. That's what your freedom of religion looks like, but it doesn't look like the church is silent on this historically for 2,000 years. And what we find is nature abhors a vacuum, horror vacui, as it said in the Latin, Nature abhors a vacuum. So it was a lie when the progressives said, we're going to pull Christianity out of the public school curriculum and nothing will fill that vacuum. That was a lie. What filled the vacuum was evangelistic atheism, amorality, immorality, neo-paganism. And now we've got a gay pride flag flying half-staff over a VA cemetery in Biloxi. But the conservatives come in a couple of flavors. And most of the flavors don't know how to actually articulate that the pride flag is the flag of our enemy. And by our enemy, I mean Satan. You know, this business with Target, Target is hemorrhaging money. And I would agree with Candace Owens, by the way, I was listening to her latest program this morning where she was bemoaning sarcastically that Lizzo has banned her on Twitter, blocked her on Twitter. What will I do now? Oh, Whoa is me. She talked briefly about the whole target business and she said, you know, I think we should just keep on going. I think they should stick to their guns and we should stick to our guns. And target should probably just cease to exist as a corporation. As far as our spending power goes, we should just stop spending money at target. If they back off of this temporarily and they put these displays at the back of the store, they're still keeping these things in the store and they haven't changed their mind They didn't change their way of thinking. It's just going to take a different form, a different variation. This is a hydra that we're fighting. You cut off one head and two more grow back. You're going to have to cut the heads off of the hydra, metaphorically speaking, and cauterize them if you want them to not grow back. But the designer, who was the last straw for a lot of people before the boycott of Target commenced in earnest, this designer from the UK is actually a woman who's done the hormone therapy and surgery and dresses like a man, but has a very feminine voice. That person's preferred pronouns are male pronouns, but that person's shirt says Satan respects preferred pronouns, which is to say the left loves Satan. The left hates Christians because the left hates Christ. It's as simple as that. We have to recognize that this pride flag is the flag of our enemy. Now, you can recognize that. And like I said in the last episode, recognize that. And you might still say, hey, I don't have anywhere else to go to buy baby formula for my child. I have to go to Target because it's the only store close by. And what else am I going to do? Right? I have to go to this or that alternative, even though they also are selling this stuff. I have to go to Kohl's to get my son some new clothes because I don't know where else to go. I was pressed for time. I didn't know. I'm not your judge ultimately, but I will say we will judge the world, saints, and we will judge angels, brothers and sisters, how much more so the matters pertaining to this life. We should ask God for wisdom. We should believe that he will give us wisdom. We should believe and not doubt and so be double-minded. And if you ask me what wisdom I see after having asked God for wisdom for years, praying and asking God for wisdom. 
we recognize that the flag of our enemy is being hoisted over institution after institution. It's to be found on the set behind the scenes for the chosen. And if things keep on as they are right now, that flag won't just be flying over the VA cemetery in Biloxi. It'll be flying over your local Chick-fil-A in the interest of inclusivity. At a certain point, you have to be willing to say, no, I can't do that. O King, live forever. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. We must obey God rather than men. And if we're voting, ladies and gentlemen, and if we have the option to vote for somebody who's not promoting homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, wait for it. Coming up soon, pedophilia. If we have the option to vote for somebody who will purge that from society, then I think we should. Read the fine print, by all means, but I think we should. The governing authority is a minister of God, Paul writes. He is there for our good, to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. He does not bear the sword for nothing, but that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.